On this day, 79 years ago, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and sent America raging into World War II. Uh, it's obviously probably like everyone's favorite war in terms of just how much they care about it and how many documentaries they watch about it and how many stories and TV shows and movies get made about it. Um, and today we're going to look at four stories from World War II that you may not have heard before, um, rightfully so, because there were a lot of other really big stories that happened during the war that, you know, took up most of the attention. It's our weird world. Our weird world. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and uh, happy Pearl Harbor Day. Um, I, I don't know why you'd be celebrating it unless you're like some Japanese imperialists, like whatever whatever their equivalent of neo-Nazis are. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, but yeah, uh, like I said in the opener on this day, 79 years ago, uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was also my grandmother's birthday. Uh, she was I, she was a little kid at the time, so that was probably a really terrible birthday and probably, you know, not a great birthday for the next few years after that. Um, but today we're going to be looking at uh, four different stories uh, from World War II, some lesser known stories, um, you know, because World War II typically gets dominated by, you know, all of the Nazi stuff and... Um, you know, the, the atomic bombs and stuff like that. And so, uh, these four stories, um, get overlooked quite a bit, but they, but they are pretty, uh, pretty, pretty neat, pretty nifty, interesting stories. Uh, the first one is going to be, uh, over, uh, covering operation Pastorius. Then we'll look at the battle of Los Angeles, the Chichijima incident, and then wrap up with, uh, the story of the USS Indianapolis. So um, this first story here um, about Operation Pastorius, um, it actually started back in 1916 um, around World War I when Admiral Canaris, who was the chief of the German military intelligence organization Abwehr, 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 Abwehr I don't know, probably Abwehr. Um, anyway, uh, Canaris led a group of German spies into New York City where they planted bombs inside ammunition factories. So in 1916, like Germany actually technically invaded the United States and actually had spies plant bombs inside weapons factories. And on July 30th, 1916, a train depot on Black Tom Island that was storing 2 million pounds of small arms and artillery ammunition, which included uh, 100,000 pounds of TNT, exploded. And this blast was so violent that it actually measured 5.5 on the Richter scale and was felt as far away as Maryland. Uh, window panes in Times Square were shattered immediately. Several fragments from the depot building actually got lodged inside the Statue of Liberty. Um, <clears throat> it's just a crazy explosion, and I'm surprised that this actually doesn't get talked about, you know, in, in terms of World War One stories. But almost 30 years later, uh, Canaris, he was still... Uh, chief of the Obvir, and he figured the same plan would work again because, I mean, Americans, if, if there's one thing that's true about us is we rarely learn from history. Um, eight German residents who had previously lived in the United States were recruited for what came to be known as Operation Pastorius. And these eight 
uh, people spent several weeks learning how to manufacture and use explosives as well as to fluently communicate in English and know pretty much everything there was to know about American culture so they wouldn't look suspicious. Um, Their mission was to attack various sites in the United States, including aluminum plants in Illinois, Tennessee, and New York, uh, locks along the Ohio River near Louisville, a railroad pass in Pennsylvania, a cryolite plant in Philadelphia, and the Hellgate Bridge in New York. Uh, Agents were instructed to then plant bombs on bridges, railroad stations, water treatment facilities, and Jewish-owned businesses in the area, you know, just to make things worse. Um, And so after they were given fake driver's licenses, birth certificates, social security cards, and a handful of cash, uh, the agents boarded U-boats and set sail for the East Coast. Um, the first group landed in New York, but was quickly spotted by the Coast Guard. And although they ended up escaping, uh, George John Dash, the leader of that first group, ended up changing his mind about going through with the mission and actually turned himself in. Um, and by turning himself in, I mean, he literally had to beg the FBI to take him seriously because they thought that he was just some crazy, you know, homeless guy who had just showed up and was like, yes, I am from Germany and I have come to invade the country and blow up things. And the FBI is just like, OK, right, whatever. Like Germany would ever invade United States. That's literally never happened before. No, I'm being very serious. We, we just landed here in New York and we, I was about to go blow up the Hellgate Bridge. Okay, guy. Sure, go on. Anyway, I, I'm, I take the accents too far sometimes. Um, meanwhile, while all of that was going on, another group landed in Ponte Vedra Beach in Florida. And the four men walked up out of the ocean wearing German Navy uniforms um, so that if they were captured upon arrival, they could just be treated as prisoners of war. That was actually done on purpose. But when they got on the beach, no one was there to see them and they just walked right into civilization. And, you know, this minor Nazi invasion was totally on. Um, since no one in Florida really seemed to care that they were even there, the four men ditched their uh, German Navy uniforms and put on regular clothes. And then they split up and boarded trains to Chicago and Cincinnati. Um, unfortunately for the Nazis though, thanks to Dash's defection, every single member of that Nazi unit was arrested over the next six weeks. You know, he, Dash in trying to get the FBI to believe him, literally told them about the other group that had just arrived in Florida. And he told them, you know, where everyone was going. Um, on August 1st, 1942, all eight members of the unit were convicted of war crimes and sentenced to death. President Roosevelt, uh, commuted the sentence of Ernst Berger to life in prison because he had been the only other guy to turn himself in voluntarily. Dash's sentence was reduced to 30 years for providing all of the information in the first place. The other six men were put on the electric chair, uh, at the district of Columbia jail. So even though, you know, technically the Germans effectively invaded, uh, one guy, uh, changed his mind and, um, like ratted everyone out. So that's, you know, had it not been for him, you know, there could have been a lot more, like there could have been literal, you know, war on American soil during 1942 or during world war two. Yeah. It's neat to think about. Uh, The next story here is the Battle of Los Angeles. And I know what you're thinking. Like, hey, buddy, no, there was no such thing. Like, there wasn't any fighting on U.S. soil. It was all in Europe and Asia. Well, here we go. 
Uh, following the attack on Pearl Harbor, Americans everywhere were really just living on edge and in fear of another attack, you know, outside of Pearl Harbor, like, you know, because, you know, Hawaii wasn't technically part of the United States then. So anyway, um, or even worse, an actual invasion. People on the West Coast were especially tense. And less than three months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, their worst fears were actually realized. Um, late that night on February 24th, um, air raid sirens started ringing all throughout Los Angeles County. And, you know, basically that just meant somebody had picked up incoming Japanese planes. Like people were just immediately assumed that the Japanese were invading and an air raid was about to commence. Um, a total blackout was immediately ordered and thousands of air raid wardens, which were people who were responsible for making sure the blackout was observed and people were guided to shelters were quickly called to their posts. And within hours, the 37th coast artillery brigade began firing 50 caliber machine guns and 12.8 pound anti-aircraft shells at the reported invading aircraft. Um, in less than an hour after over 1,400 shells had been fired, the all clear was given and the blackout was lifted. Um, later that morning, when the sun came up, uh, people re- people saw several damaged buildings and vehicles as a rep- as a result of the fired shell fragments from the you know Coast Artillery Brigade. Um, even more, three people were killed in car accidents in the scramble to get to the raid shelters, and two other people died from heart attacks in the chaos. Um, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox held a press conference later that day saying the entire thing was a false alarm, which is unfortunate. Um, General George Marshall claimed that commercial airplanes using psychological warfare tactics purposely caused the incident to generate panic. Other more logical and reasonable people suspected that there was something more going on, though. Um, And by, you know, logical and reasonable, I mean completely insane. Uh, some believed that there was actually a secret Japanese base in northern Mexico where the Japanese were planning an invasion. Others believed that uh, Japanese submarines capable of carrying uh, aircraft were stationed offshore, which uh, if you, you know, even though that sounds ridiculous, if you uh, listen back to um, the uh, Japanese July episode uh, for the Unit 731, I do believe is what it was, uh, the, the leader there actually had... Um, plans for a submarine to you know start like a biological attack off the coast of san diego um others even more believe that it was an alien invasion and if you uh, read a lot of ufo websites they will point to this as an alien invasion and that the, the air raid sirens were actually trying to fight off a ufo you know rather than the japanese um in 18, uh, 1983, the United States Office of Air Force History finally revealed the answer to what happened or what caused the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, and it's actually not that exciting. Um, at some point during the night, a weather balloon was launched off the Pacific coast and then was immediately lost. And the people who launched the weather balloon didn't report it, and so the mysterious object was then mistaken as an invading aircraft, and everyone, just because of how tense it was, you know, lost their minds. And so... Uh, in reality, the Battle of Los Angeles was just, you know, the American military shooting at a weather balloon and then s- subsequently destroying parts of Los Angeles. So uh, the next story here is the Chichijima incident. And uh, so this took place during the Pacific campaign in World War II. And, you know, during part of this campaign, American forces were flying over the Bonin Islands, which are roughly about 700 miles south of Tokyo. And as a group of fighters flew over the island of Chichijima on a bombing run, the Japanese launched an attack. 
And within minutes, the, you know, the Americans were taken by surprise and nine American crew members had crashed on the island. Eight of those nine crew members were immediately captured. Um, the first one, an op- a radio operator named Marv Mershon, was quickly marched to a grave, blindfolded, and forced to kneel before being beheaded by a Japanese soldier. Um, but rather than keep Mershon in the grave, Japanese Major Suyo Matoba got drunk off of sake and decided to include Mershon's flesh as part of a large feast for himself and a group of other Japanese officers. Um, you know, so... If you, again, just adding to, you know, my, my general theme in Japanese July that they were just at like terrible people. Some of them, some of them, some of them, I'm not going to say all Japanese are bad, but like they were cannibals. There were literally cannibals we were fighting against in world war two. Anyway, uh, Floyd Hall, another one of the pilots was also captured and butchered. Uh, his liver and six pounds of thigh meat were removed and served by major Matoba to another group of officers. Um, despite the cannibalism hall, you know, at, at, which is gross as it sounds, hall was served on bamboo skewer skewers with vegetables and soy sauce. So, um, you know, they at least like dressed it up and, and made it presentable, I guess. Um, and they did this because the, the Japanese actually believed that human meat was a good medicine for their stomachs. I don't know why, but you know what? Whatever. It's a cultural thing. Um, Jimmy Dye, another pilot, was initially sent to work as a translator. However, Captain Shizuo Yoshi uh, decided to join on the cannibal parade and requested Dye's liver to be served at a party with his fellow officers. A fourth airman, Warren Earl Vaughn, was also cannibalized. Um, the other four survivors were just straight up executed. The ninth airman, airman, however, escaped shortly after the crash. And this soldier who ditched his plane farther from the others just kind of floated around the ocean, you know, vomiting, bleeding from his head because, I mean, it was a rough hit. I mean, he literally just crashed into the ocean. Um, and as Japanese boats rushed out to capture him, the Americans sent air support to drive them back. And eventually the USS Finback, which was a, a submarine, appeared in front of the soldier and rescued him. And what's crazy about this story is that that soldier's name was George Herbert Walker Bush, who obviously went on to become the president. So um, crazy, right? How uh, he was almost captured and cannibalized uh, on a Pacific island, but instead became the president. So, you know, hey, you can you can do anything just about. Uh, the last story here is the story of the USS Indianapolis. Um, you know, kind of like last week, uh, this ship, you know, it will sink spoiler alert. Um, but this is, uh, this is, this is a very uncomfortable story. Um, so on July 28th, 1945, uh, the USS Indianapolis sailed West out of Guam after having delivered the components of the atomic bomb, which was roughly half the world's supply of uranium to 230 through 235 at the time, uh, to, to, uh, Tinian. Uh, the Indianapolis's next mission was then to meet up with the USS Idaho in the Philippines and prepare for the invasion of Japan. But shortly after midnight, a Japanese torpedo hit the right side of the ship, blasting a 65-foot hole and igniting a tank that contained 3,500 gallons of jet fuel. Um, immediately, a tower of fire shot hundreds of feet into the air. Um, and then, and then just a few minutes later, another torpedo hit the ship near another set of fuel tanks and powder magazines. The explosion ripped the ship into two different pieces and sank it in 12 minutes. Um, nearly 300 men on board the ship died in the explosion, but there were also, you know, 900 other soldiers on board the ship and they were able to jump 
uh, jumped safety into the ocean. And safety in this case is a very relative term because it's not like they were close to being rescued. They're out in the middle of the Pacific. Um, they also had very few life jackets and even fewer life rafts. Um, fortunately for them, the Japanese didn't really care about finishing off the remaining soldiers. And once the ship had been destroyed, the, the Japanese submarines left the area. Um, as the sun came up the next morning, survivors just kind of swam around taking life jackets from dead soldiers and giving them to those who were still alive. But bobbing around in the Pacific Ocean with what basically amounts to a bunch of human chum tends to attract uh, a swarm of very unwelcome guests. And by the end of the day, the surviving soldiers floating amongst the wreckage uh, were surrounded by just an innumerable number of oceanic white tip sharks. And, you know, we like to think of like tiger sharks or great white sharks who are the most dangerous, but the oceanic white tip is actually considered one of the most aggressive species of sharks. Um, and you know, maybe they got that reputation for what happened next. Um, on the first night, the sharks remained content with just kind of feasting on the hundreds of dead bodies floating in the water. But as the sharks started to run out of dead bodies, they began turning their attention to those who were still alive. Um, the soldiers started grouping themselves together, but anyone who had an opened wound was separated from the healthy soldiers and just kind of left to their own devices, which is crazy morbid. But like when you're in a survival mode, like that's what you got to do. Like it's, you know, the weakest link is going to get everyone killed. Um, any soldier who then died was stripped of their life jacket and kind of pushed out to sea, you know, kind of like how Eskimos push old people out on icebergs. I don't know if that's true, but that's just what people say. Um, you know, just kind of like, you know, so, you know, as like a sacrifice to angry shark gods. Um, after one soldier, um, you know, like it's like that scene in the movie where like it's that one ignorant friend who everyone's trying to hide you know, like maybe they're hiding in the attic from the killer and then like the one dumb friend just like opens a can just like and then like the loud noise attracts the killer and then they come in. So like this one soldier opened a can of spam and the scent drew the angry sharks over and quickly people realized like we can't have food like and they all started getting rid of their meat rations. Um, one survivor, Edgar Harrell, uh, in a, in a later interview um, said that like at any given time you could look out and just see big fins swimming around and around and around him. Um, all of a sudden then you would just hear like a blood curdling scream and you would look and just see that a shark had taken a guy underwater. Like it was literally just like playing, you know, Russian roulette with your legs where just you could see the shark all of a sudden just one guy would fall underwater screaming and he would never be seen again. Um, it was even worse at night. If you can imagine, you know, screams would just break the silence, uh, you know, of the darkness. And then the next morning, like four or five dudes who you had seen yesterday would just be gone. Um, and with every subsequent attack, you know, the bloody clouds of water would just con continue to attract more and more sharks. Um, LD Cox, another survivor said that they would come up and just kind of like bump you. And, and Cox with himself was actually bumped a few times and you never knew when they were going to attack. You know, the, the water when it wasn't bloody was super clear. So you could see the sharks circling around. And then every now and then one would just come up and just grab a soldier and take them down. Um, one actually took the soldier next to him, you know, and, and just, 
it, it was almost constantly like someone was screaming or yelling or getting bit. It was like horrifying. Like this would be easily like one of the scariest movies ever made. Uh, if they did that, which I think actually there was like a really bad, poorly done, like Netflix version of this. Um, I don't know if it's still around anymore. Like it was, it was pretty bad. Um, meanwhile, like while all of this is going on, United States intelligence, uh, eventually intercepted a Japanese message, you know, reporting that a ship had been destroyed along kind of the same route that the Indianapolis had been traveling. However, the Americans initially disregarded the message, thinking that it was just a trick by the Japanese to lure more American ships in the area to get destroyed. So the days just dragged on now. I mean, it's multiple days just kind of floating in the ocean. Um, Every now and then a soldier would die from like the heat or just the lack of fresh water. Uh, Some began hallucinating and started gulping the seawater, which only make things worse and got them more dehydrated and killed them. Um, Those people would actually end up foaming at the mouth and suffocating on their own swollen mouth and tongue. Um, Some, you know, and and some of those, you know, survivors were actually dragged under water because people were hallucinating and going insane. Um, After four days of floating in shark infested waters, a Navy plane spotted the group of survivors and called for help. A few hours later, a seaplane landed nearby and dropped off life rafts and survival supplies. Uh, the pilot, Lieutenant Adrian Marks, actually taxied his plane closer to the wreckage after seeing soldiers under attack from the sharks um, just to try to scare the sharks off. Um, by midnight that day, uh, the USS Doyle arrived on the scene and began pulling survivors or what was left of the survivors from the water. Um, of the nearly 1,200 men who were originally on board uh, the uh, USS Indianapolis, only 317 survived and so if that kind of tells you anything so uh in the initial explosion 300 you know soldiers died so out of the 900 survivors from the torpedo attack only 317 uh got back so nearly 600 died from basically from shark attacks um and that that's a very that's a very bummer way to end the stories but you know that's that's just how it goes So yeah, there you go. Some lesser known history of uh, World War II. Um, we'll have another episode like this later on where uh, we talk about some lesser known heroes and, and individuals uh, from World War II. But um, yeah, so let's uh, let's just kind of see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, despite what you may read on, you know, highly credible websites, uh, the Battle of Los Angeles was not an alien invasion. Um, You know, it's not a government cover up. It was literally just the United States accidentally freaking out and shooting at a weather balloon, which is kind of scary. But, you know, it happens. Uh, Number two. The Japanese were cannibals during World War II, and they almost cannibalized uh, President George H.W. Bush, but they didn't, and so, you know, you know the rest. Uh, and number three, if you ever find yourself stranded in the Pacific Ocean, chances are you're going to die by sharks, and it's not going to be fun. Next 
Last week on Our Weird World, we go back to serial killer land with the story of Rodney Alcala, uh, better known as the dating game killer because he literally appeared on an episode of the dating game um, while, you know, after he had already been accused of rape. So, you know, 1970s, you know, it, not a lot of background checks going on. So that'll be a fun story. Um, as fun as a serial killer story can be. So thank you again for listening. Tell all your friends and remember, keep it weird.